production. Greg Braden is a scientist, international educator and renowned as a pioneer in the emerging paradigm based in social policy and human potential. He is a rare blend of scientist, visionary and scholar with the ability to speak to our minds while touching the wisdom of our hearts. Greg says, we live in a world where everything is connected. We can no longer think in terms of us and them when it comes to the consequences of the way we live. In this heartwarming conversation, Greg and I discuss the dark days of his childhood, the secret wisdom of the Indigenous cultures, and how the words we think and speak can actually change the way the neurons in our brains and hearts connect. The new discoveries in neuroscience are telling us that the words we use not only determine how we think, but the words determine what we are even capable of thinking about, what we are even capable of conceiving. And the reason is because the words influence the way neurons wire and fire together. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is a life of greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Greg Braden is a five-time New York Times bestselling author. Some of his books include The Divine Matrix, The Turning Point and his most recent book, The Wisdom Codes. In this episode, you will learn no matter what your circumstances, we all have the ability to lead a glorious life. In this episode, you will learn the true meaning of resilience, courage and faith. Greg, you didn't have an easy childhood, but it led you to where you are now. Can you take us through your younger years growing up? Well, we're going to start with the easy questions first. <laughs> I, um, I don't talk about it a lot, and I'm happy to talk about that. I, uh, I was born and raised uh, in a very conservative part of the United States of America, right in the, the center of the country, uh, in a very dysfunctional, uh, alcoholic and abusive family. My father was, was the abuser. Uh, my mother, my younger brother and I got, got the bad end of that deal. And, uh, and he left our family to my uh, exuberance. He left when I was 10 years old. It was difficult, of course, for my mother to raise, uh, as, a, as a single mother, to raise two, two boys on her own uh, during this time. Uh, but I had to figure out very, very quickly what was true and what was not true in the world around me. Uh, we, were, we were so poor, we were broke. It was, it was more than being poor. We lived in low-income housing, uh, and I was surrounded by a lot of other young people in the same position I was. It was a time when drugs and alcohol were, uh, were very, very prevalent in, in that community. And, uh, and I had to understand for myself where I would fit in the world and what it was within me. Now, I, I will also say that I have been blessed all of my life, Sarah, with what I have come to call a very strong soul compass. And what I mean by that is when I was surrounded with uh, people my age and older, 
who were engaging in all kinds of practices that were not only uh, illegal, but they were really unhealthy for themselves. I, for whatever reason, I was never drawn to indulge in those things. Uh, and I, I didn't know why, but I, I just knew that it wasn't good for me. And I had an experience. I'll just tell you, I, yeah. I had an experience. Um, I turned to music as a refuge, and I am still a musician today. And I had an experience, uh, two experiences in the same year. I went to my first rock concert and saw Jefferson Airplane, uh, Grace Slick, the lead singer. I, was, I sat on the front row and I proclaimed my love for Grace Slick and she completely discounted me. <laughs> but I, I had this experience where I looked around a hall and I saw about 30,000 people being moved by what was happening on that stage. And I was in awe of the ability of just a few people on stage to move those people in the audience the way that they did. But then I saw something else. When we left the concert, there was an emptiness because people needed some physical medium to recreate the experience. They needed to have, at that time, they were a, a vinyl records or eight-track tapes. They needed to have that record to recreate the experience. The same year, I saw a man, one man, speak in a theater. Uh, it was a stadium, 70,000 people. His name was Billy Graham. Uh, he was a religious uh, evangelical uh, speaker, and I wasn't so much on board with the message. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't agree with the message. But here's what happened. I saw 70,000 people being moved by that one man, and when they left, they didn't need a recording of what had just happened because his words changed something within them about the way they felt and about their relationship to themselves and their families in the world, and it stayed with them. And it, it made such a powerful impact on my life. And I, I said, well, I'm either going to be a musician or I'm going to be a communicator of some kind. So I tried the musician thing for a while. <laughs> and I learned, I learned why I do not want to make my living as a touring musician. Uh, but I'm, I'm still, I, I love music, and I'm, I'm still, I'm a singer-songwriter. But the, the ability to find the words that touch people's soul in such a deep way that it helps open a new understanding and a new relationship between them and their own bodies or between them and the person they share their life with or between them and God or between them and the earth, between them and the cosmos, that ability uh, spoke to me deeply, and, and my soul compass said, you know, I think this is the direction that I would like to go. Uh, I chose the path of science. I am a degreed uh, scientist. I'm an earth scientist with a strong background in life science, and I chose that path because for me, science was a neutral language. It did not carry the baggage that the religious language might carry or some of the other traditional language might carry and because it was based in fact. And I made a promise to myself that whatever I would share, it would be truthful, honest, and factual. Because the question is, how can we possibly deal with the world that we find at our doorstep if we're not honest with ourselves about that world? If, if we cannot be truthful, honest, and factual, when it comes to us, 
who we are in our relationship to ourselves in the world. How can we possibly solve the problems? So that's a long answer to a short question, but it lays a foundation that we can tie into uh, of, of my relationship with, with science and why I made some of the choices that, uh, that I made. You have your fabulous book out called The Wisdom Codes, and mm. it talks a lot about why words are so powerful. But before we get into that, I want to ask you, you've always had a really big fascination with Indigenous cultures and travelling to to these sacred places. Can you take us through what, where that began? I, I will share something with you I rarely share because we are having this conversation right now. When I, I found myself working in the corporations as a scientist, as an engineer, as a software developer during the Cold War years, for example. And, you know, the Cold War years... Some of our listeners weren't even born yet mm. when that war was happening. And it was one of the most frightening times in the history of modern civilization when the two superpowers at that time, the United States and the former Soviet Union, they had thousands of nuclear weapons trained on the large cities in each nation. With the finger on the button, we lived under the threat of nuclear annihilation for about 40 years. Uh, it was a, a horribly frightening time. And when I found myself in that industry, I was developing software for Launchpad uh, for missiles. It was, wow. was my job by day. And by night, I always had a sense, Sarah, that if we know where to look into the past, and if we know how to look into the past, those who have come before us left for us a way of knowing that would prevent the kind of wars and the suffering that we were living in the 20th century and that we had lived World War I, World War II, the Cold War. If we could find that, and my sense was that that knowledge, that wisdom resided in the indigenous wisdom of the world. And it led me on a journey. My very first journey was into Egypt, on the temples of Egypt. Uh, and what I found on the temple walls led me into the indigenous communities of the Andes Mountains of Peru, Peru led me into the highlands of central China and Tibet, almost 18,000 feet above sea level. And the knowledge that the monks and the nuns were living in those monasteries and what they understood about our past. So my journey has been to understand myself in the presence of this vast wisdom uh, of human experience and find the place, the nexus, where this comes together with the best science of the modern world. And I believe this is where we are right now, Sarah. We are living this evolutionary period, unlike anything we've ever seen in 5,000 years of recorded human history, when the unsustainable ways of thinking and living are breaking down faster than we can record them. And there must be something in place that does, in fact, replace those unsustainable ways of thinking and living. And my belief is that if we can base that new thinking upon the wisdom of 5,000 years of human experience, as well as the best science of the modern world, if we can find the values that we cherish as a civilization and as a species and bring those values front and center so that all of the social policies and all of the laws and the new world that's emerging 
revolves around our most cherished values, we can't go wrong. You know, I, I don't know what the world a year from now will look like. No one can because it's changing so quickly. We cannot know that with certainty. What we can know with certainty is if we choose these most cherished values and if we make them the foundation of every choice, of every law, of every policy, then we cannot go wrong. So these are the values, the fundamental values of, of freedom, mm -hmm. for example. Freedom has to be one of those values of community. We are communal beings. We are not made to be isolated and separated. We need the freedom to have community. Imagination of helping our young people to to wean themselves from the moving lights and the flashing dots of electronic devices, to awaken their own creativity and their own imagination that in so many instances has now been stifled by the repetitive and the monotony of technology. Uh, these are the kinds of values, freedom, life, community, imagination. These are the kinds of values that we stand to lose in the world that's emerging if we let other people make those choices for us. And this is one of the things that I've learned from those indigenous traditions, from the wisdom of our past. You say in the wisdom quotes, a single word has the power to influence the expression of genes that regulate physical and emotional stress. Can you take us through that? Yeah, Sarah, I mean, just think about what you just said. Think about the power of the statement that you just made. A single word a spoken mm. word has the power to change the genetic expression of our biology. And that is a direct quote from Andrew Newberg. He's a neuroscientist. And I chose that quote to open the new book, The Wisdom Codes. The book is the result of my 40 plus year journey into these ancient and indigenous traditions. What I discovered as different as these traditions were, that there were common through lines that, that bound them together. And one of those through lines is that there have always been words, patterns of words and phrases that humans have turned to in times of need for comfort, for solace, when they lose their loved ones, when they are in fear. There have always been these words and they've been preserved as prayers, as hymns, as chants, as mantras. They're on the temple walls of Egyptian tombs. They are in the most sacred writings of the Vedas, 7,000 years before present, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Buddhist texts, the, the indigenous, native North American wisdom, the South American wisdom. So I have cataloged these words over the years through my journeys, um, and I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with them. And the book was written before COVID-19 happened, before the, mm. the pandemic. But I had a sense that the world was moving into a difficult time. And, and I said, you know, if these words have given comfort and helped people through difficult times in the past, and it worked for them, it's going to work for us. So I, I brought these together. I cataloged the words according to types of difficulty, according to loss. Uh, and according to fear and, and things like that, protection. And, um, and it, it's not necessarily a book you read from cover to cover, but 
you pick it up. And when you're, when you're having a, a tough time, you go to the part of the book that resonates with that tough time. And it, it shares the source. So you can check it out for yourself. You can go and see these original texts. Uh, I have a commentary on what they mean. And then I share in the indigenous language, if it's native American or if it's Hebrew or Sanskrit or whatever it is, uh, as well as the English translation uh, of how those words can be used. Uh, here is where the science comes mm. in. And the reason Andrew Newberg said what he said is that the new discoveries in neuroscience are telling us that the words we use not only determine how we think, but the words determine what we are even capable of thinking about, what we are even capable of conceiving. And the reason, and I'm fascinated by this, mm. the reason is because the words influence the way neurons wire and fire together. And I'll just take it one step further where it gets even more interesting is the new science beginning in 1991 is telling us that we have neurons not only in our brain but we have neurons in our heart. And that our heart has a neural network of about 40,000 specialized cells that think, feel, remember, and experience independently of the cranial brain. So when we hurt and when we are suffering and we try to address that solely through changing our thoughts, it may help. But we all know that there's something missing. It often is incomplete. And if we sense that incompleteness, it's because we have only addressed the hurt and the suffering mm -hmm. in our brain. What about the neural network in our heart? And this is where the indigenous wisdom comes in because they have always told us uh, that the, the heart is, it's called the seat of the soul. A dear mm -hmm. friend of mine, Gary Zukov, yeah. wrote a book called The Seat of the Soul. And, and he's, he spoke of this beautifully. Yeah, I, I did an experiment, Sarah, a few years ago when I was traveling through these indigenous traditions. And every culture I went to, I would ask them the question. I'd say, show me, where are you right now? And, and I'm hoping everyone that is listening can also see. But if you can't, I'll explain. What they would do was they would take an open palm and they'd put it right over their heart. Mm. They'd say, I'm here. They didn't say I'm here and touch their head or their arms or their back. It's almost universally, intuitively, we say I'm here because we sense that this, our heart, is, is the, the core of our being, the seed of our soul. And in the indigenous tradition, this is so beautiful. One of the mysteries in the scientific world is the, the human heart. It's the first organ that we develop in our bodies in the womb of our mother. And there's an instant in time, Sarah, where the heart is simply a mass of cells, motionless, static, and then something happens and the heart takes its first beat. And the mystery has been what just happened in that moment. Now, scientists will talk about ion potentials traveling across cell membranes and things like that. But the indigenous people, they have a different experience, a different explanation. Yeah. They say the moment that we take that first beat in our heart, it's the moment that the soul enters our body. And the science now that. knows that there is an energetic essence that has not been accounted for historically in science. It, uh, it can be measured electrically. 
Uh, we don't understand it in our culture because it hasn't been allowed to be explored in science traditionally. Certainly, uh, there are scientists that are doing this, but you won't read this stuff in, in the classrooms and, and the, the textbooks of, of traditional universities. On the one hand, on the other hand, it goes right to the core of who we are and our existence. So the book, The Wisdom Codes, uh, it's a long answer to a short question, but the, the book, The Wisdom Codes, is a collection of the, the, the words, prayers, chants, hymns, mantras that have helped our human family in the past. And the science now tells us why these words can be so powerfully effective. And once we understand the mechanism, then we know more about what to do and the things that work will work even better. And the things that don't work, we don't have to put our energy into any longer. In the wisdom codes, the, you talk about the Lord's Prayer, which is an ancient code mm. used in the, in the Christian tradition. And the short version goes, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is so powerful about that prayer? You know, the, uh, and I actually caught some flack. Uh, I had some pushback for having the, the Lord's Prayer uh, because it was, there were people that felt that I was focusing on one particular tradition and, and I was not. So there is an emerging philosophy in the scientific community that consciousness informs itself through its creations. Mm. So what that means is that the things that we make, art, music, the books we write, the sculpture, the films that we create in Hollywood, for example, they are more than diversions, they're more than entertainment, that they are us asking ourselves to remember something about ourselves. That is a very, very powerful philosophy mm. because it suggests that there is this interaction between the field that connects all things and us as, as conscious entities, okay? So I know it's, it's, a, it's a deep concept mm. and, and we'll think about that a lot. Following that concept, the, the science now suggests that all of the technology in our outer world mimics something that we already do within our bodies, that we are surrounding ourselves with a complex technological world because we want, we long to remember who we are and the science, the technology in our computers, in uh, you know our, our mobile phones, our radar, our lasers, everything that we're building, it mimics something that we already do in ourselves, except we do it even better. Mm. Perfect example is vaccines. Vaccines actually mimic what we are designed to do within ourselves, and they try to accelerate and enhance the process, but they're mimicking what we already are. So from this perspective, all right, every computer that has ever been built, no matter how big, when I was in the industry, they took up entire rooms. Mm. And now they will fit on the head of, of a pencil eraser. Every computer, no matter how big or how small, is programmed in a, uh, in a way that only involves three steps, three sections of code. It's the introduction, it is the function statements, and it's the completion or the closure. The reason I'm saying this is because the Lord's Prayer is one of the most ancient templates that mimics those three steps 
when we communicate with the field of information that connects all things. The Lord's Prayer is uh, is a universal template. And once you understand that template, you will see it in other prayers more recently. So in the, the Lord's Prayer, there is our, our Father. And I offered a translation that was based upon um, uh, a more accepted translation. Uh, so some of the words were a little bit different. But historically, uh, our, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is the declaration statement that says what we are about to do. And then, depending upon the full length of the prayer or the abbreviated length, there are what are called a series of petitions in the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. These are the petitions. And then the closing in the original prayer, la alam, amin, amen, in Aramaic, in faith, in trust, in truth, I seal this prayer. That's a closure statement. So from if we consider ourselves as highly advanced, technologically sophisticated beings in a sea, a field of energy that we constantly interact with through thoughts, feelings, emotions, and beliefs, that prayer offers a template for how we communicate effectively with that field in a way that the field understands. And it was offered long ago before we had the science that we have today. So it's a long answer, again, to a short question, but I think it's fascinating when you begin to understand uh, our relationship to this field of energy that Mm. is now confirmed. The field, by the way, is no longer controversial. Uh, I was the CERN superconducting super collider in Geneva, Switzerland in 2017. I spoke there and was given a a tour uh, just after the scientists had announced the existence of what is called the Higgs field, the field that underlies all existence. And where this gets so interesting, and then, then I'll, I'll stop with this, is it's not that the field, Sarah, it's not that the field is out there. People do this. They say, oh yeah, there's a field out there that connects all things. We are the field. Every atom of every molecule of our bodies in each instant in time is either emerging from the field or collapsing into the field And we regulate how that emergence or collapse forms through our thoughts, feelings, emotions, and Mm. beliefs, through our chants, our prayers, our mudras, our mantras. And this is a very ancient technology. So this is the reason that I shared the the prayer as a template for this communication. So if one was to say the prayer, which a lot of people do, what would be the... What would be the feeling, the experience that they were to receive by saying such a prayer? It, it depends upon the individual mm. because we offer the prayer through the filters of our experience. But this is why one of the reasons that I shared some of the information earlier, because now we can tie into it and I can answer this question right. effectively. What we know is, is the human brain is a polarity organ. We, have, we all know we have what's called the left brain and the right brain. When we try to solve our problems or if we try to seek comfort and solace in times of need, if we try to do it mentally, what happens often is that we get locked up in the ego loop of the polarity brain 
because when we look at our problems from our brain, we will always see a right and a wrong and a good and a bad. You know, how could they have done that to me? And how could I have been so stupid? And, and we will always see success and failure. But here's where it gets really interesting. The heart is not a polarity organ. Mm. There is no left and right heart. So when we learn to shift our awareness from the neural network in the brain, which is good to use for some things in life, to the neural network in the heart, which is good to use for other things in life, like relationships, we don't have the left and the right brain. You don't have success and failure in the heart. You don't have right, wrong, good and bad. Your heart doesn't even judge. Your heart will discern. And I'm going to make a very, very powerful distinction. There's a huge difference between judging another individual as good or bad or right or wrong and discerning that what that individual has done or the choices they have made are not aligned with me as an individual. So we discern that we may not want to be involved with that individual without judging that individual. That's a very, very powerful difference. The heart will never judge. So when we are able to offer the prayer or the chant or the Lord's Prayer, for example, from the heart rather than from the mind, it changes the experience. It opens us to deep states of intuition and healing because we are not locked into that polarity. We're not stuck in the thinking that keeps our wheels spinning in the, uh, in the judgments uh, of other people and the stories, uh, you know, what we've been told, uh, uh, the programming from our parents or from university or from our community or from our religion or whatever it is, the heart frees us from those things. And when we go, I mean, this goes on and on. I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of our viewers know that the, the Christian Bible, as good as it is, was edited in the fourth century. 43 books were removed by the Emperor Constantine, what was called the Council of Nicaea. And we know this because those books were recovered in the 20th century. Uh, the Nag Hammadi were the oldest record of the New Testament, mm. and the Dead Sea Scrolls were the oldest records of the Old Testament. I'm saying this because when we see those ancient texts in their completeness, they actually talk to us about the power of the human heart and our ability to focus in the heart and why, why our heart is so important in our lives. Those books and that kind of information is what was taken away uh, because it is so empower, empowering to us. It's where we find our deepest levels of mastery. Greg, what's been your most mystical experience with these hymns, chants, mantras, prayers? Hmm. The most mystical, wow. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things I've learned Sarah, and I don't know if this is the answer to the question, but I was led to believe that I had to go to certain places in the world or I had to become a certain kind of person to have these experiences, to access deep states of intuition, to have clear communication with nature or a higher power, that I had to relinquish 
all my physical possessions. I had to live in a monastery halfway around the world. And, and while it's possible to do that, and for some people it, it may be a good path, what I found is that we can do this in, in our living room mm. because we are wired. We are literally wired uh, to adapt and thrive in times of change. So, so to answer your question, um, as a scientist, I'm going to open the door to a conversation that I don't know how far we'll be able to go. I wrote a book in 2004 that is called The God Code. The way that book came into existence was I followed my intuition that there was a wisdom left for us in our past, if we understand how to recognize that wisdom. And I went to a 3,000-year-old text that had only been translated one time into English, a very mystical text in the Hebrew traditions. Uh, it's called the Sefer Yitzirah, is the name of the text. Uh, it's so mystical that a lot of the teachers won't even touch it because they say it makes no sense. It's too mystical. And I said, wow, that's the book that I want to know about. I interpreted the book through the modern periodic table of elements as a scientist. And there is a mathematical link between the words of that ancient book and the atomic mass of the periodic table. It sounds technical, mm. but it's not. So let me, here, here's the mm. bottom line. By marrying those two ways of knowing, this ancient mystical book with the modern periodic table, I was able to go into the DNA of every cell of my body and of all carbon-based life, every blade of grass, every plant, every animal, every insect. And that DNA exists in layers of information. And once I was able to replace the hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon with the letters of the ancient alphabet, it began to read like the pages of a book. And the very first message in every cell of your body and my body and everyone who is watching this, at 3 a.m., when that message came across on my computer from doing the analysis, is probably the most mystical experience of my life. Because what the algorithm revealed to me was that within my body, the 50 trillion or so cells of my body, there is a message and the message begins with the words, God eternal within the body. When you translate the DNA through the mathematics into the ancient languages, it works in Arabic, it works in Hebrew, it works in Sanskrit, it's a universal language. And what it says to me as a scientist, I don't know how that message got there, but all I do know is when I followed the instructions in the 3000 year old text, Something was revealed that told me I am more than a random accumulation of mutations and molecules. God eternal within the body. And it led me on a journey, Sarah. You know, when an artist creates something they're proud of, the last thing they do is they sign their creation on every sculpture, on every piece of art, even the electronic technology and the computers that are bringing us together right now, every component has a signature from whoever it is, an identifier that made that. And it makes sense to me that if we are more than just random mutations, if there is some kind of intelligence 
that underlies our existence, who or whatever underlies that would have left a signature. And that signature wouldn't be in a book that could be destroyed in fire or a temple wall that could crumble over time. The book would be in the creation or the, the, the signature would be in the creation itself. As long as the creation lasts and lives and exists, that signature is there. And you ask the question, and I'm answering you honestly, this was probably one of the most mystical experiences, and it happened in my living room. One of the most mystical experiences was when the computer algorithms revealed the message in the DNA, the first layer of the DNA of my body. And then I applied it to all, all other life. Uh, and we all share that common message. If we ever want to look to see a unifying factor that brings us all together, regardless of our beliefs or our heritage or our culture, God eternal within the body lives within every one of us. And, uh, and I think that is a message worth revealing. What is your favorite prayer? We were given different prayers for different situations. Mm. Now, having said that, uh, I my home uh, for over 30 years now has been in the high desert of northern New Mexico in the United States. Uh, it's a large state with a large Native American population. And the Navajo tradition is, uh, is a big part of that. And in Navajo, there is uh, a prayer that is called the beauty prayer. Beauty has always played a powerful role in mm. my life. Uh, when I left the corporations, I had to make a choice. I said, am I going to live in the convenience of a big city where life is easy, where I've always lived? Or do I want to wake up every morning surrounded by beauty in a way that maybe it's not so easy to live? So we live now an hour from the nearest grocery store and mile from the nearest neighbor, very cold winters. Uh, it's not easy, but I'm surrounded by beauty. And for me, it's worth the trade. So in the Navajo traditions, beauty is a force of nature. It is actually considered the fifth force. Physicists tell us there are four fundamental forces. There's the magnetic force, electromagnetism, gravity, and the strong and the weak nuclear forces. In the indigenous traditions, they say yes, and there's a fifth force that is beauty. And it's more than an emotional aesthetic. Beauty is actually, it, it is a, a fundamental essence in the world we live in. So they offer a, a very lengthy prayer for beauty that is also condensed into three brief phrases that I say to myself probably once a day, if not more. The beauty that I live with, the beauty I live by, the beauty upon which I base my life. What this means, the beauty I live with, it means the beauty already exists. I don't have to create it. My job is to seek it out in all things. The beauty that I live by is an invitation to allow that beauty to be present in my life in all experiences, the, the beauty upon which I base my life is the invitation to see the world, to choose, to see the, the beauty in all things from the most frightening and the darkest to the, the greatest light, uh, to see that and to allow that to be a foundation in my life. And if I had to say there was a favorite, it is probably the one that, uh, that has the most application in my life. 
right now. What is the best advice that you've ever been given? Um, I think I shared a little bit uh, that I come from a very dysfunctional family, uh, an alcoholic, uh, an abusive family. My father left when I was 10. And my mother, knowing that she was about to raise two boys without knowing how to do that, and that she felt she wasn't equipped to that, had the wisdom to give me a book. And she gave me a book at 10 years old uh, that has been a cornerstone in my life to this very day. Uh, It was a book that was written in 1929. It is called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Uh, And he was a, a Sufi poet. And each chapter of the book was a discussion, only a page or maybe a couple of pages. But I would think about those things for days. And the one that has stayed with me the the most, Sarah, Khalil Gibran talks about work. And what he said as a 10-year-old boy, this impacted me. He said, work is love made visible. Work is love made visible. Uh, I found myself, our family was very poor. I lied about my age. I went to work in a copper factory, a copper mill early in life. It was very difficult work. I used to load boxcars with 50-pound bags of, uh, of cat food and cat litter uh, from midnight to 6 a.m. We used to do this so the trains could leave in the morning. And the people I worked with hated their jobs. And I didn't want to live in hate. My soul compass said this makes no sense to me. So I began looking at my work as a physical workout. I said, you know, if I lift those 50-pound bags just right, I can be here for eight hours. I can get a workout without going to the gym. I get paid for it. Who could ask for more than that? Work is love made visible. And to this day, if I say yes to anything, if I accept the challenge of the responsibility, I will do more than my best because to do less would be to cheat myself out of my love made visible. And that, I think, is one of the greatest pieces of advice. My mom didn't know what part of the book would help me, but she sensed that something in that book would speak to me. Uh, Work is love made visible. It's on every email that I send out. If if you get an email from me, it's at the bottom of my email. It's on my wall in my studio. It's on my wall in my office. And I say it to myself many, many times a day. That's my mantra. That's absolutely beautiful. What is a life of greatness to you? Early in my life, um, I had an experience in nature where I went deep within myself. And I said, if I leave this world today, if I die today and I could never come back and I look back on everything I've accomplished, would I feel complete with my life? And the answer was a screaming no. It was the most horrible thing I could think of would be to to leave this world and not have accomplished whatever it is that I could contribute to the world. And so my next question was, what would it take to say yes? What would I have to change in my life to feel that completeness? And that is the, the guide stone for every choice that I make, every invitation that I get to write a book, to do a film, to do an interview with Sarah, whatever it is. I compare it to that guidestone and and I say, will this help me? Will this bring me closer to my yes? And for me, it's about honoring the sense 
what is it that I can offer, that I can share, that I can contribute, that I can give to make this world a better place? And to the degree that I'm able to accomplish that, uh, that is what drives me in life. Greg, thank you for always learning and pushing yourself to find out more about why we are here and what can make us have the best lives possible. We are so very grateful for you. Thank you, Sarah, for your trust, for sharing me with your community. And uh, we've never worked together before, but I look forward to our next. I look forward to doing this again. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.